Freeform. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Myla Goldberg, author of a collection of nonfiction called Times Magpie about living in Prague, as well as the New York Times Notable Books in 2000 and best-selling book, Bee Season, which was also made into a film. Her new book is called Wicket's Remedy. She has short stories out in McSweeney's and Harper's over the over the years, still stuff, still, still stuff coming out there, and also reviews in New York Times and Book Forum, um, and does all kinds of other stuff that we'll touch on in the interview. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you here. And um, I would love it if you would just uh, launch into the book and sort of give us a little context for um, what is Wicket's Remedy and read a little bit and then we'll we'll jump in and talk about it. Sure. Um, Wicket's Remedy is a book that takes place entirely in Boston, mostly during the 1918 influenza epidemic, but partly in the present day in the sort of dying golden days of a not very good tasting soda called Cutie Soda that had its heyday decades before. Um, the main character of the main story, the 1918 story, is a woman who starts out in the world named Lydia Kilkenny. She um, is born into a tenement in South Boston to an Irish Catholic family. And South Boston is a sort of neighborhood. It's very insular, and it's expected you're born there, you grow up there, you die there, and you're happy about it. Um, she had other ideas. She wanted to get at something bigger. And so she, um, as soon as she could work, she took herself to a fancy downtown department store in Boston, which is where she met her husband, Henry Wickett, an aspiring medical student. They marry. They're in love. She thinks, this is it. This is the beginning of my big, grand, beautiful life. He starts a patent medicine with her help called Wickett remedy. Um, they both think that, well, him more than her, she, he thinks that this is going to be their ticket to success. She's dubious but willing to go along. But then the 1918 influenza epidemic comes and everything that everyone had been expecting to happen with their lives gets pretty much upended. Um, the part I'm going to read from takes place, so the flu has hit. It's huge. Um, the 1918 flu, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, but really big deal in this country and the rest of the planet. And um, Lydia had spent a day volunteering at her her local hospital, and then had discovered an ad in the newspaper looking for vol- for people to work on Gallup's Island as nurses where they're going to be conducting experiments in transmission. So what I'm going to read from is she's shown up to try to get this job. She's being interviewed by um, an administrator, and... Um, she doesn't have any experience, any applicable experience, and he's just kind of, he's realized that, but he's continuing with the interview, and so we're in the middle of the interview here, um, and I'll pick it up from there. And at this point, um, Lydia just tried to leave. She's like, you know what, I shouldn't even be here, I'm not qualified, so she's just saying, you know, see you later. Please, Miss Wicket, Mr. Corey coaxed, you would be doing me a great service if you allowed me to finish this interview. He held up his paper. I've already begun to fill out the form, you see. She sat. Age, 23. Address, 
28D Street. The mask made it impossible to read Mr. Corey's face. He returned his attention to his desk. His window looked out on the windows of other buildings. Without a view of the street, Lydia could almost pretend that the city was unchanged. It's really quite good of you to bear with me, Mr. Corey continued. Just a few more questions and then we'll be done. Have you any children? No, sir. Are you a drinking woman? Certainly not, she retorted. Good, he sighed gratefully. Due to the extreme circumstance, some of the hospitals have begun accepting personnel with handicaps of various sorts, but that won't do here, he explained. We had one respondent, a lovely woman, but then she had some trouble and that scotched it. Oh dear, I believe I just made a pun. Corey paused and eyed the paperwork arrayed before him. You'll have to forgive me, Mrs. Lydia Wickett. It's been a very long week. You don't have a fever, do you? No, sir. Aches, fatigue, cough, congestion? Um, no, sir. Excellent. It is likely to be a two-week study, but it could go as long as a month. Influenza transmission, headed by Dr. Gold. We've got to start out how people are catching this thing if we want to stop it, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that Dr. Gold... Sir? Well, exactly. Any other time, and people would be clamoring to work with him. You will live and work on Gallup's Island, where you will be expected to assist the nurses and doctors. Food and lodging will be provided. Salary is $20 a week. Sir, she replied, you did hear all that I said? Mr. Corey consulted his paperwork. Let's see. Your name is Lydia Wickett. You have limited hospital experience. You have no dependents. You are not a drunk, and you are not ill. Is that correct? Wonderful. Thanks so much. That is Myla Goldberg reading from Wicket's Remedy. Now, in a fairly recent, um, well, it was a year ago, in an August 22, 2005 um, article in the Village Voice, you were quoted as saying, writing is the reason I'm alive, basically. There's no reason to tell the same story over and over. And in other interviews, you've been quoted as saying that... Um, sort of self-revelatory autobiographical fiction doesn't interest you. You want to make things up. This is a very different book from your first book, The Season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's just so way different. I don't even know how to, you know, how to start. Will you talk a little bit about how you got into this book and why this book and, and what's exciting to you about um, sure. this process? Um, well, I mean, when I'd finished my first book, Bee Season, and I was fishing around knowing I was ready to start writing something else. I knew I wanted my next book to be as humanly different from my first book as possible before I even knew what it was going to be. Um, the writers I admire most are writers who are always pushing themselves in new directions and trying to do something new. And I kind of, you know, since writing for me is a long-term plan and a long-term goal, and when I'm like an aged, wrinkled old biddy, still like, I still want to be at this thing. And so right now I figure my brain is pretty plastic and I can still learn things. And so I think it's particularly important to try to learn as much as I can while I'm still able to learn. And so that means trying to push myself into completely new places to make myself try to do different stuff so that later on I have an entire arsenal of writing tools at my disposal. And so it was with that attitude that I was kind of casting about for my next subject. And um, I was reading an article in the New York Times that just listed the five worst epidemics of all time. And on that list was the 1918 influenza epidemic. And um, I was a morbid kid. I'm in a morbid adult. I read about diseases. I get excited. And I'd never heard about the 1918 epidemic. And killed 
killed in America. Some quick statistics. Um, mm-hmm. In America, it killed 500,000 people in about nine months, which is more Americans than were killed in all 20th century wars combined. A huge number, um, especially if you remember that this was the early 20th century where we were a much smaller country than we are now. And so what amazed me is that something of that scale could be forgotten. Um, you know, I just became this this book for me became in large part an exploration of the fragility and fallibility of memory on both kind of individual and collective levels. So, And when you're thinking about these tools to come at, so, so subject matter wise, this is very different. The bee mm-hmm. season takes place in, or bee season rather, takes place um, in a community with a, a little girl who is a national spelling bee champion. Mm-hmm. Who, and um, here we have South Boston and um, very different sorts of um, the time period, everything. Um, is that what you mean when you're talking about sort of tools or or formally? And um, how are you coming at thinking right. about telling that first story versus telling right. this story? Well, I mean, tools is a huge, broad term that encompasses everything from narrative voice to types of characters to type of story to, I mean, you name it. Um Bee Season was an intimate kind of narrow scope story that involved a family and was pretty much only concerned with them. Um, Wicked's Remedy is a very broad canvas of a story that's not just about a person but about a time period, about a city. Um, and the person, you know, it, it has a person who's an entirely different kind of person. And that's also told in a completely different voice than, you know, Bee Season was. So, I mean, when I say tools, I mean anything you could possibly think that affects how a book is written or what's in a book. That's what I mean. And so I was just trying to get at as many different possible things as I could. And um, you said that you wanted to be, when you're uh, an old biddy, you still want to be, <laughs> be chugging along with your typewriter or computer. Yeah, computer. Computer, I guess, at this point where we've moved on. Um, but... Were, when you were small, I ask. I always ask during the sound check, what's the first box of crayons? And that's sort of how we test voices. When you were with your first box of crayons, were you thinking about being a writer then also, or where did it come from? I've only and ever always wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, talk about first memories. I mean, when most kids, you know how kids play house or play school or whatever, I would literally sit at an electronic typewriter and pretend I was writing a novel. I mean, that was fun for me. So, yeah, I've always, always wanted to write. And did that come from reading, or did it come from something else, or do you do you have a sense of... Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, th- I mean, I grew up fantasizing that I was some kind of mutant or alien or something, because no one else in my family was like me. I, didn't, I don't come from a family of writers or artists or anything like that. Um, I was a very avid reader as a kid. I was also just, I had an extremely active imagination. As much as I was reading, I was also always inventing stories. Even before I was writing, or even as I was writing simple stories, I had hugely complex imaginary games like that involved Fisher-Price little people or sometimes tribes of different colored marbles and the carpet of my floor would be their world. I mean, you name it. If anything, anything that I was given, I would turn into a narrative given enough time. It was just like an obsession of mine. It was the way I loved to play. So, yeah. And when was the switch from sort of loving to do that to sort of being conscious about having this meta-narrative about uh, learning technique with it. So from making a, a world of marvels in your rug to thinking about, okay, I've already made a world of marvels. Now I'm going to invent another wheel and figure out how to do story differently. When right. did that conscious process of, of transforming right. the imagination into 
your stories? Well, I mean, I've been writing stories since, like in second grade, I entered, there was this thing, I grew up in Maryland, called the Write a Book Contest. And so in second grade, I wrote this story called The Little People, about little people who lived in the grass. And um, I wrote it, and this guy, Lawrence Burton, Lawrence Burton, you out there, where did it happen to you? He illustrated it. Um, and I think Julie Turpening wrote it, because my handwriting was terrible, so she was the actual letterer of the book. And we entered in the contest, and it won first place, so it was terribly exciting. Oh. But I mean, like, and that's what I mean, I have been writing stories just forever. I remember also like sitting at my grandmother's kitchen table. It was a shellacked wood, dark wood table with crayons um, and paper and writing an illustrated horror story about Edgar Allan Poe rising from the grave. Edgar Allan Poe was one of my early heroes. Um, That's what I mean by the morbid thing. The morbid thing thing starts early. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I was always killing animals and people off in my stories when I was a little kid and like really into horror stories and horror movies. I still am really into Edgar Allan Poe. And so, yeah. Wow. Um, nobody dies in the BC and BC. It's true. It's true. That's why I had to have so many people die in wickets. I had to make up for, you make know, up for yeah. all that. Yeah. Well, you also, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more after the break, but I want to begin it. Um, one of the things that's going on in um, Wicket's Remedy is not only is there the narrative that we expect on the page, but there's all this, um, I think the poet Brenda Hillman has referred to a similar type setting on, on her pages is ash along the, pa- along the hmm, page. That's a nice term. Um, and so there's all this ash along the page in the margins um, that are whisperings of dead folks. Right. Um, and then at the back of each sort of section or chapter, there mm-hmm. are newspaper articles and uh, Flyers and right. and like conversations of unattributed dialogue. It's like you're eavesdropping and yeah, all sorts of different kinds of stuff. Of stuff, you yeah. Just threw all that stuff <laughs> in. <laughs> um, was how why I can I, um, I want to ask you a little bit about each of those pieces and how they they got in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we take the break, the dead people, the dead yeah. people whispering. Um, I hear dead people. Yeah, yeah. we're hearing them on the page there. <laughs> yeah, um, there are notes that kind of run down the margins. Um, and that came, one of my very favorite books is Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov, which if you open it up, looks like a big, long epic poem that has annotations. And then as you read, you realize that the novel lies in the annotations. And I just thought that was way cool when I read it. And I guess I made a mental note to self, you might want to try this someday. And so, you know, I was just saying, I think before how this novel was for me very much an exploration of the unreliability of memory. Usually when you read a book, you trust what you're being told. You know, the narrative is, why shouldn't you believe it? It's the story, right? I didn't want the reader to have that experience. I wanted the reader to firsthand experience that memory is not to be trusted. And so those voices allow that to happen. They chime in and they interrupt and they disagree. And sometimes they say that never happened or they say it happened a different way or they like make petty little changes. No, it was a blue dress or you know, something like that. And um, it's been interesting. People seem to either love or hate the margin notes. And you kind of, it's a very polarizing thing for readers and also very confusing. Um, you know, most people, when they open a book, they don't expect to see that and when they see it they don't know quite what to do with it and so I've had readers come to me and say how do I read this and they get kind of you know upset a little bit like do I read at the beginning of the page or the bottom of the page or the middle I don't know what to do and I guess my intent was to and my hope is that every reader will figure out for themselves how they want to read it it's your book you can read it however you want and I think one of the wonderful things about telling stories is that there's so many ways to tell them and um, I think it's really important to provide a reader with other ways to experience a story than just the plain old beginning middle end you know one set of story on a page that is it and so that's what I was trying to do 
great, scary and great. <laughs> All those people who are like, wait, no, give me a, an end to end. Well, that's a good place for us to take a quick break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Myla Goldberg, is the, off- the author most recently of Wicket's Remedy. We'll be right back. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. That is Leonard Nimoy doing the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. An immortal classic. <laughs> yes. And you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My guest today, Myla Goldberg, used to play that on her college radio. Yeah, I had a show from 3 to 6 in the morning on, I guess it was technically Sunday morning. And so I could do, it was, I went to Oberlin and the WOBC is the station there and it was a great time and I was always searching around for just deeply strange stuff. That was one of my favorites, so. So Mr. Spock does does music. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. does. He's a multifaceted individual. He's doing photography now. He's a photographer. Leonard Nimoy is mm-hmm. a photographer. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. One that's just fabulous. Well, um in the before we took the break, we were talking a little bit about um this um conundrum and um innovation and change of the the margin notes or the uh, the ash the the musings of the dead people who correct right and left. No, that's not how it happened. That's it was this way. Um I want to talk a little bit about the um things that you've done at the ends of the chapters. So mm-hmm. not only is the narrative interrupted throughout the sort of what one expects to be the bulk of the chapter, but it's it's just interrupted everywhere. <laughs> the narrative um, flips back and forth in time. Um, it flips back and forth across um, realms of real life and dead people life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then it flips into sort of told story and um, narrated story through, um, nar- as in within the context of the, of the narrative um, story that's told in newspaper articles and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um You have um, been quoted, I'm going to do it again, I'm going to quote you from another interview. Um, In talking about gender and the kinds of books that you read and the kinds of books that um, you you want to write, um, I've said that for some weird reason it seems to me that the really large-scale, super-ambitious literary projects are written by men. Those tend to be the works that I'm attracted to. As a writer who happens to be a woman, I want to break in there somehow, this in part... This is part of my ambition, my megalomaniacal plan. (laughs) So when you were thinking about how to write this book, um, you've also mentioned that B season came as a gift, and it was a quick write, if you will. Yeah, it really was. Um, Whereas this book is a five-year book that you then went back in and rewrote parts of between the hardcover and the paperback (laughs) edition. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, where do you Tell begin? Tell us about the megalomaniacal. Megalomaniacal. Going to conquer the world. Um, 
Well, so there's so many things you just stuck in there, so I'm going to try to take them in order. You were talking, you first started talking about all these different sections of text, and so I want to let you know who I stole that from because it was like such a wonderful discovery for me. For the first two or maybe even more years that I was working on this book, I wasn't reading any contemporary fiction at all because I wanted the voice of this book to feel timeless, and whatever I read tends to infect my writing. I just can't help it. And so I know if I was reading contemporary fiction, my voice was be, my writing voice would also sound slightly contemporary and that wouldn't do. So I was only re- reading things that had been written in or around 1918 and it was that, that was how I stumbled upon the writings of John Dos Passos who I'd never read before, even really heard of before, and I read his USA trilogy, which I think is just a forgotten treasure of American letters. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing book and he does that. Um, it's Those three books are told through snatches of very straight up kind of self-contained narrative, but then patched in between are he actually kind of did cut-ups before Burroughs did cut-ups. Um, he preceded Burroughs by decades with that. He has sort of telegraph messages that are sort of cut up along with radio broadcast headlines into this like big melange of verbiage. And um, he has first-person narratives and newspaper stuff. And I just loved that. I thought, wow, what a great way to tell a kind of broader story, to kind of paint a much larger picture. And so I just I realized I had to do that for this book. And so... Yeah, you mentioned there's newspaper articles in here. Pretty much without exception, there's maybe one or two that this isn't the case. They're real newspaper articles. The stranger the newspaper article is, the more assured you can be that it's taken from a period newspaper. Um, A lot of my research had to do with reading period newspapers, and I was just discovering the strangest stuff. It was just great. And then there's snatches of overheard dialogue that is just like you, it's like you're eavesdropping on a street corner and just, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess this was kind of my stab at the sort of large scale, large scope, ambitious novels that, you know, in previous years, I've said generally seem to be written by men. I mean, which, duh, there are exceptions to that. Of course there are, and there's plenty. Yeah. Of, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the Thomas Pynchons and the David Foster Wallaces, and often you can be kind of hard set to come up with some female authors to, like, give to that list of these kind of broadly ambitious, hugely, you know, works that just encompass, you know, that much stuff. So... Yeah, is there a fear, do you think, on the part of, like, were you worried about taking on something that's that's ambitious in this way? Um, No, it's not at all about fear, I don't think. I think think it has to do with enculturalization, that's not even a word, let's just say socialization, shall we? Um, I think it has to do with socialization. I think, you know, when little boys and little girls are growing up, they're socialized differently. And also, you know, men and women are different just chemically and hormonally, and I think it tends to shape perspective and what you prioritize and what's important to you. And so I think, you know, the different kinds of things that as a rule in aggregate, the genders tend to tackle, I think is reflective of that rather than, I don't think it's about fear. It's just about, you know, what tends to float your boat. Yeah. How have you found your readers? Do they come up? Are they are they women or men? And is there a difference between these two books? And, um, <laughs> um, that's a good question. I mean, my my readers and readers in general tend to be women. Um, just you know, the statistics say and the demographics say that women people, read. yeah, the people who are buying books are women, or specifically fiction. Men, for whatever reason, tend to buy and read more nonfiction than fiction. And so when I'm giving readings, yeah, there tend to be more women out there. There's men too. Um, it's too early in the game with this book to know who my readers are, you know, because when you're out for your hardcover on tour, the books just came out, no one's read it. And even with paperback, people are still just coming to it. So I think the big test will be when 
whenever my next book comes out and I'm going to give readings to see, you know, who's, who's out there, there in the seats yeah. and that would be reflective perhaps of who had read the second book. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, with this book, it's not only just coming out in paperback, but it's coming out differently in paperback than yeah. it came out in hardcover. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, this is this thing that I'm both proud of and embarrassed of the at, like simultaneously. Um, usually, you know, the paperback is the hardcover, just smaller and with like a flimsier cover on it. Um, and usually to make a paperback, all you do is you shrink down the hardcover page. But because of this ash, you know, these weird margin notes, um, had they shrunk down the hardcover page, those margin notes would have been illegible. So what that meant is they had to retype the whole book. They had to reset it. So I got a call from my paperback editor and she said hey you know we have to reset the book are there any changes you want to make (laughs) (laughs) but she was really upset well I mean it was a very innocent question that she really ought not to have asked me Um, what had happened was you know Wicked's Remedy was a book that I'd been working on as a full time for five years it was five years of full time writing and so by the end of that five year period I had a book that seemed finished and I was like well I guess I'm done aren't I? And I mostly thought I was. I had this sort of little teeny voice somewhere in my midsection say, wait, are you sure? Are you sure? But, you know, I thought, well, I've given it my all. I don't know what else I could possibly do. And there's no such thing as an absolutely perfect book. And I think it's probably time for me to move on. So I turned it in. And then a year passed. And that whole year I'd had sort of time to think about it. And, um, when my paper editor, paperback editor called me with that question, I'd been thinking on it long and hard. And I thought, huh, you know, there are some things that I think I might want to make a little different. And they all concerned the last portion of the book, the last third, because what happens in the last third is Lydia goes to an entirely new setting and meets an entirely new group of people. And I realized I could have introduced and developed those people a little bit better than I did, which would have allowed the reader to understand how Lydia changes a little bit better than she does. Um, I felt like maybe she flatlined a bit and she didn't have to. She could continue to kind of deepen and grow as a character. And there were also some kind of expositional sections where the, it's the, the story kind of talks at the reader rather than involving the reader in what's going on that I wanted to convert into un- winding scenes. You know, I didn't add talking dogs or a car chase or anything like that. Like the Kept changes, looking for the talking yeah. dogs. <laughs> the, the changes that I made are entirely consistent with the hardcover version. And I think if a hardcover reader were to read the paperback, they actually wouldn't even be able to pinpoint what was different. It would just have a slightly different feel to them. I wanted it to be subtle. But, you know, the paperback is the book for the ages, you know, capital letters on B and A and um You know, given the opportunity to make that book the absolute best book that I could, knowing that there are things that I thought I could improve, I couldn't turn down that opportunity. Now, that said, the last thing you want to do to your most devoted reader, you know, who runs out and buys the hardcover saying, it's different now, like, oh, my God, how terrible. What a terrible thing to do. I feel awful. You know, I mean, I don't want to make these people have to run out and buy yet another book. This is not a ploy to get people to buy another book. So what I've done, I have a website, mylagoldberg.com, in which I have posted the revised pages. And so anyone can go and look at those pages. So hardcover readers, if you are listening to this interview, you don't have to buy a book. Just go to the website and you can read those pages and you'll have all the information. So great. <laughs> you saved them. I, it didn't even occur to me that that could be a ploy. Right. I, I was, and, but your perfect marketing thing. Yeah. You I mean, go buy another book. I'm a deeply cynical person. So yeah. I always like, I always interpret the worst possible motivations for everything in the world that happens. So like if I was a reader and I had that come out, I was like, oh, great. You know, great guys. Thanks. Good marketing. So yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's great. Um, well, I wonder what the experience was going back into the book. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. slogged for five years mm-hmm. to finish it and then right. finished it and then had these little nagging feelings right. and then went back in. Right. Um, it felt awesome, actually. Really? Well, I had a very limited time frame to do the thing because they needed to get the paper back out. And so basically I said, okay. I mean, it took convincing. They were understandably reluctant to let me do this. I mean, they weren't sure what my motivations were. They weren't afraid if I was going into it for the wrong reasons. They weren't sure that I had the kind of perspective that what the changes would actually make it better and perhaps it would make it worse. I mean, they had lots of reasons that to be worried. And so I finally convinced them that they just had to let me try. And I said, look, if I turn these in and it sucks, don't print it, you know, but you got to let me try to do this. And I said, okay, you can only change, you know, this small amount and you have three weeks. Go. (laughs) And so that's what I did. But the thing is, it wasn't like these were new thoughts. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a year. And so it was the easiest thing in the world to do. It was basically the last rewrite that I should have done before turning it in, I think. And so I have learned a valuable lesson. I mean, this was only my second novel. I'm still figuring out how this whole novel writing thing works. And so the lesson that I have now learned is that if I think I'm done, but I've got the niggling voice, it means I need to put the book down for at least six months, don't look at it at all, and six months later, come back and look at it because I think had I done that with this one then that's you know I would have made those changes and I would have been because now I'm just delighted I mean I was delighted before like when the hardcover came out I was really proud really happy but I was like you know well I wonder if it's as good you know but now it's like yes this is this is exactly you know what I want I'm very happy and if by some chance like they're going to do another edition and they said do you want to make changes I would say no you know, I definitely <laughs> will. Print, print. Yeah, print it. I'm happy with it. This is the book I wanted to write. And there's a note to the readers in the back of the paperback that kind of goes into that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the portrait that I wanted to create. I'm happy now. So Wonderful. And your readers are happy who would, <laughs> might think that they'd been tricked. That's right. <laughs> not a trick. Not, not a, a trick, trick. Not a trick. Well, we are going to take a short break because it's time for the top of the hour station oh, ID. Station identification. Exactly. Excellent. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Myla Goldberg, is the author most recently of Wicket's Remedy. We'll be right back. And while we're gone, we're going to be listening to Myla Goldberg playing with a band called The Walking Hellos. This is How to Move Far, Far Away.
listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Myla Goldberg, is not only the author of Wicked's Remedy, but she was lead vocals on that track we were just listening to called How to Move Far, Far Away. And the banjo player. And the banjo player. (laughs) (laughs) And you play accordion and flute? I do, yeah. Well, flute is more of like a past life thing. In the band now, I switch between pretty evenly between playing accordion and playing banjo. All right. Well, tell us... um, So... I want to start all over the place, all at once. (laughs) (laughs) I want to throw some ash in the margins and then some other stuff at the end. Um, You're involved in, you live in New York, Mm -hmm. and are involved in an art collective called Flux Factory. Yeah, I'm tertiarily tertiarily (laughs) involved. Yeah, mostly I'm just friends with those guys, and I kind of... I kind of vaguely participated in one of their projects, but mostly I'm just a cheerleader for them because they do really cool stuff. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in a second then. I want to say that that's one of the things that, that, we'll, that we'll cover. And you were in a band called the Galerkin Method, which is um, Galerkin Method, for those of you who are not mathematicians, has something to do with moving differential equations into linear algebra. Yeah. The, um, I was, that was mostly a collaboration between myself and a Flux person, actually one of the co-founders of Flux, Stephanie Goldberg, and her father was a mathematician, so it was from him that she got the name The Galerkin Method, which is just an awesome name for a band, I It think. is a great name. So. And now you've moved on to a band called The Walking Hello. I have, yes. So let's talk about your, you write full-time, <laughs> published books, and then uh, have all those other stuff going right. on. Uh, what's, what's all that literary life, artistic life doing <laughs> for you? Well, I mean, I've always been both a musician and a writer. For as long as I've wanted to be a writer, I've also played music. I've been playing music since I was a very little kid. Um, I grew up playing flute and piano and then branched out to banjo and accordion later on. Um, but it was kind of like when I was in college is when I really had to decide and when I kind of came to realization that my ambition lay with writing, but my happiness was very much tied up in playing music. And so that I was going to do both, but turn like the full bore of the megalomaniacal you know, energies into the writing part. But I've always, always had some sort of musical project going on. And I think what makes it so great is writing is an extremely solitary process. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're God, you're creating your own world. But music, or at least the way that I like to play music, is the absolute opposite of that. It's the um, aspect of collaboration that makes it so nice. And so in The Walking Hellos, it's a purely collaborative um, process. Everyone comes up with their own parts. And, you know, the person who comes up with the lyrics will be the person who sings it. And um, it's just, it's a really lovely way to make music, I think. And that kind of creative group energy, I think, feeds my the other side of my brain in a really nice way. So so who's in the band? Who are your collaborators? Um, the guitarist is a woman named Valo Pielski, and she's in a bunch of awesome stuff. She's also just a composer in her own right. Um, the bass player is indie rock superstar Rose Thompson. She used to be the bass player for Babe the Blue Ox. And then our drummer is a really awesome woman named Heather Wagner, who um, is just you know fantastic as well. So it's a lot of fun. And do you tour and gig, or do you just record? Yeah, we play out. Um, we try to play out every six to eight weeks or so in and around Manhattan and Brooklyn. And we've started going out of town a little bit too. We played a gig in Philly last month, and um, we're available weddings, bar mitzvahs. Um, <laughs> we have a website actually. If anyone's actually interested in hearing more, it's just walkinghellos dot com. But yeah, we we try to play out, you know, on a fairly regular basis. And what's the, um, I've read somewhere in, in some of the old interviews um, that you've done that you spend sort of the middle of your day from, say, around 10 until 3 or 4 um, writing, mm-hmm. and then do you, and you have a little girl. I do have a little girl. <laughs> and then you go, do you 
guys get together often? For we practice once a week. Um, these days we're practicing in my basement, which is very convenient because I can put my daughter to bed, turn on the baby monitor, and then run down to the basement and play rock and roll for two hours. And so that works out really nicely. Um, so, yeah, we, we practice once a week, and then, yeah, we play out every six weeks or so. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And is the um, the writing process, um, do you write lyrics and then come together and figure out melodies? Or do you write melodies and then come together and figure out melodies with other people? Right. Or how, do you, there's, how do you work that collaboration? There's no set pattern to it. Um, if, you know, basically Rose and I tend to be the lyricists and singers. And so if Val, say, comes in with a song idea, she'll have like a series of guitar lines that she's really excited about. She'll play those for us and then we'll come up with, you know, things on our instruments to play and then it's as soon as we're listening to that, both Rose and I are starting to generate possible vocal melodic concepts. And then the lyrics often come last. Um, after a vocal melody comes, then lyrics will be added to it. But sometimes when I'm just composing, um, I'll come up with a lyric idea first or a vocal melody that comes with some words attached that I then shape into a more cogent sort of, you know, lyric because I tend to I tend toward narrative lyrics although I'm trying to be more associative these days and less totally linear with how the lyrics come out because um, I just think it opens up the song a lot more. Do you think that tendency toward um, narrative has to do with what you're writing I mean the way you write when you were writing for the page? Yeah I mean I'm, a, I'm, poetry a, no, no. I'm a narrative junkie like it's just like <laughs> I also I'm not re- like representational painting I won't I'm not really bad at looking and appreciating abstract painting like in every aspect of my life I'm looking for the narrative <laughs> it's just I can't help it so well then just run with it <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'm just going with it oh I guess you could take the marbles and the little figurines and throw them up in the air and see where they land that's true that's true <laughs> then you have the two worlds together um so there's a bunch of really cool stuff happening in New York these days. New York is also very different from what it was even 10 years oh, ago. Yeah. Um, stuff's <laughs> changing. How do you um, live and feel about the kind of literary and artistic community there? And how do you define it as a, is there a scene that you see or that you see yourself participating in? Or Right. I mean, I get asked this a lot because there's so many Brooklyn writers these days and there's this, there's this idea that we have some sort of little club and we all like hang out together. I mean, I'm not terribly social in that respect. I don't go to a lot of parties. Um, I don't go like, you know, because there's always publishing parties or magazine parties or I don't, I don't generally tend to go to those. I do get together with a, cu- a bunch of writers about once a month to play some poker, but that's really all we do. We just play poker. We don't actually talk about writing or books or careers or anything like that. Um, So yeah, there's a community, but it's a pretty loose, at least my interpretation of it, it's a fairly loose community. And for me, it's just knowing that I'm living in a place that's populated so heavily with writers as a comfort. You you know, it's not necessarily knowing them or talking to them on a regular basis, although I do have a couple pretty good friends who are writers in Brooklyn or New York. Um, But for the most part, I don't feel like it's this like click thing. But anyone, I guess, who's on the outside of it would feel like it was a quick thing and I couldn't <laughs> blame them. So what's the what's the comfort? Why is there comfort in numbers? Um just knowing that there's people out there who are doing what I'm doing and maybe going through the same trials and travails and like if I needed to I could probably find someone to say, oh, help them, I'm having a hard time and like they'd know what I was talking about. I don't know. It's just it's it's a, I guess it's a matter of just a shared culture. Like you don't need to necessarily be talking with people who share your culture. So it's feeling of at home, like, you know, you belong here. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of an irrational, instinctual feeling. And you're not a native New Yorker. You grew up in Maryland. True. Yeah, I grew up in Maryland, but 
whenever I thought about living somewhere, it was pretty much I wanted to live in New York. Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Well, just New York, and then that became Brooklyn. Um, I've been in New York since, I think, 1994, and I don't intend to ever go anywhere else. So. Well, um, I wonder if you'll speak a little bit about um, how you, what you're working on now um, and how you get a project to completion. Um, you have this community of writers that you play poker with. Do you also have folks who um, you read each other's work and sort of um, informally workshop it, if you will? Right. Um, when I was writing BCs and I was part of an ad hoc workshop for maybe six months, it then kind of fell apart, but that was really helpful at the time. I haven't been in a workshop ever since then, but I do have a slightly shifting cast of about five friends who are my readers and who I absolutely rely upon. Um, and... Most of them aren't writers per se. Most of them are maybe there's some visual artists in there. They're all just really close readers, though. I mean, they love to read, and they're very articulate, and so they can talk about what works and what doesn't work for them. Um, in case in point, when I was working on Wicked's Remedy, I was about two and a half years into it, and I had a finished book, or at least I thought I did. I thought, great, I'm done. You know, B season took two years. It's been two and a half years. This sounds right. I'm done, right? Gave it to two friends to read, and they read it. And um, they said, you know what? This isn't very good. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and, um, you know, my heart sank. And I was like, what do you mean? And, um, you know, it turns out, you know, they talked to me about it. And um, they were right. The, while the story, I was very happy with the storyline, the character of Lydia in particular was just flat and dead and not alive on the page. And I realized that I needed to trash the entire thing and start over. Um, I kept my storyline, but I told the story entirely differently, starting from page one. And I mean, it's deeply important to me to have friends who love me enough to tell me when I suck, because if I didn't have them, I would be lost. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to ask someone to do for you. But if you find someone who is willing, boy, are you a lucky person, so... Yeah. yeah, we should all have friends who love us and tell us we suck when yeah, we do. Exactly. <laughs> um, your husband is a cartoonist, mm -hmm. and um, the graphic novel is sort of all the rage in some circles <laughs> these days. Have you ever thought about um, that sort of uh, U-turn or right turn or left turn from what you've done so far? Have you thought about collaboration? Um, um, people ask me if you know Jason and I have ever collaborated. When we were sort of dating and flirting, we collaborated on a not very good comic together. It was more about flirtation, I think, than art. But also, you know, back to the megalomaniacal thing, we're both just so deeply egomaniacal when we were talking about our own work that we don't play well with others so much. <laughs> you know, we we just want to do what we do. And also, we spend enough time together as it is. I mean, like, our work time is like we're by ourselves and we like it that way. Um, it's not out of the question, I guess, that I would get involved with comics in some way, though. It just, it's not a form. I love to read them. I'm a huge comics fan, but it's not a Who form. Who are you reading that, these days? Which um, One of my absolute favorite cartoonist is Renee French. Um, she's brilliant, and she writes, just makes beautiful, beautiful stuff that's deeply, deeply twisted and dark. <laughs> so I like I like her stuff very much. Um, Megan Kelso just came out with a book called The Squirrel Mother, which is um, kind of short stories, uh, which are also really, really lovely, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always smart. Um, so those are two that I like a lot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, my form is pretty much the novel. And you're asking me about, like, new stuff that I'm working yeah, on. Yeah, you, what's the, you you sort of did the BCs and now a whole, nother, a whole other set of tools, and what's the... Right, well, I'm kind of schizophrenic right now. I have two different projects. Um, one is a novel that's so new I can't talk about it much except to say that it's set in the present day. 
something I've never done before. I think it's going to be on the shorter side, kind of intense, doesn't involve much research. <laughs> and I've been reading a lot of Graham Greene and Ian McEwan and J.M. Coetzee. Um, I'm interested in that sort of intense realism that tends to deal with moral gray areas and ethical quandaries. I think that all three of those guys are people who deal with that stuff and articulate it really well, um, and I'm interested in that. Um, and then the other project that I've been working on, I'm actually, um, just for fun and for myself, writing a horror movie. <laughs> Great. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. Wonderful. So. Well, it's about time for us to wrap up, but I want to announce that you are reading tonight at the Ann Arbor Public Library at mm -hmm. 7. Yeah. Is that right? And you'll be reading from Wicked's Remedy. Yes. I will be reading from, six, yeah, 7 o'clock. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And I'll be reading from Wicked's Remedy and even talking a little bit more about things you haven't yet heard. Great. So y'all can, can come on out if you'd like to hear Myla Goldberg doing more with <laughs> Wicked's Remedy and with writing. I would also like to thank you for coming down today. Oh, it was lots of fun. Thanks <laughs> so for having me. To have you and for bringing all this wonderful music we didn't get to play. Who did <laughs> you bring in we did, that we didn't play? Oh boy, um, Barbara Manning, who is excellent. Um, Thinking Fellers Union Local 282 is one of my absolute favorite bands of all time. Os Mutantes, Tropicalia Movement from Brazil in the 60s and 70s, and then The Books, which have three albums out now. They're a band out of Massachusetts, and they are also brilliant. So you missed that. Wait, yeah, y'all missed that. You'll have to go on out and get it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a lovely job, as always. And thanks to you listeners for tuning in today. Next week, Jeffrey Eugenides. And stay tuned. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. This has been The Living Writer Show, and The Sports Report is next.